0: Hello, welcome to Inspired Podcast, where every experience is inspiration. So today we have Kevin J. Payne. He's a CEO of Live Your Life Well. He's a teacher, speaker, and tech-savvy and data science person. So can you tell me a bit about your traumatic past and how, like, could you bring me through that traumatic past, like, how you change as a person? Sure, I'd I'd be delighted to. Thank you for having me here, Josh. Um, So,
1: I guess there are a couple of parts that are most important to my story. Uh, On the one hand, you know, I was always a geeky kid who who liked computers and liked being a scientist and, and that sort of thing, so... Uh, I I got a lot of education and got my doctorate in sociology and psychology, and I spent 15 years as a professor and, you know, really enjoyed it. But I've also been a techie from the time I was little. I mean, I started uh, programming computers in 1977 when I was just a little kid. Grew up doing that. It wasn't a, a common thing to do. So I'd always had technology involved in the kind of research I did as a social and behavioral scientist. and About 10 years ago, I decided to leave my job as a professor, and become a startup tech entrepreneur full-time. So in that time, I've, I've done a few startups, and uh, usually I, I, I do the geeky part, the data science part of it, where you're uh, creating models that explain and predict what humans are doing and use that to drive some kind of interface or back-end system uh, that, that drives the product. That's so, so cool. Yeah. I think you know, it's a lot of fun. And 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 uh, you know, and I've consulted for dozens of companies doing that sort of thing over the years too. So yeah. that, yeah. Go ahead, please.
0: Yeah, I like how you uh, describing your your past going out as a geek and becoming a tech savvy person. It was like Steve Jobs or like those tech savvy people like one of your inspirations or? Like, we, you were like growing up for that time, so.
1: Yeah, you know, I was, well, I was a, I was a kid, you know, just getting into computers when the first Apple computer came out in 1977. And I got a hold of one to, to work on. So I worked on my first Apple in 77 and an IBM System 36030 mainframe and a PET 2001 microcomputer that If people aren't that old, they can look up and they can see like, you know, that's like way back in the museum of of computers. So, uh, you know, at the time, there were these two crazy young guys who were, you know, really only about 15 years older than me or so, who had started Apple Computer. And actually, not even quite that much older, but... Uh, You know, so there were these two Steves and there was Steve Jobs and there was Steve Wozniak. And like most of the true geeks of that era, it was the Woz, Steve Wozniak, that we all looked up to because, you know, Steve Jobs was, he was excellent at doing the Dog and Pony show. But the Woz was the guy who created the architecture. And so he was the one who was the real geek vision. Behind what they did with Apple Computer, so yeah, I mean those were you know people that that uh, I looked up to and and uh, you know like many of of that era, we would get together in these local computer clubs, and we would trade software on disks uh, that that we were using or on you know some of the computers back then used an audio cassette tape to oh, store yes. their data. Uh, so we'd switch those around and, and, you know, we had uh, acoustic coupler modems so that you could, uh, you know, dial up the phone and and you would physically put the phone handset into these big rubber, uh, you know, couplings. And, and uh, that's how you, you know, use audio tones to, to pass the data back and forth. And we'd, we'd pass around numbers to secret bulletin boards that were being set up and, Backdoors into the ARPANET because it wasn't called the Internet yet; it was called the ARPANET. And so, yeah, we were hacking into the ARPANET and trading wares and and uh, you know modifying our computers
0: by hand. And it was a lot of fun. And yeah. uh, what was like your purpose? Like you had such a great uh, role model. And then, like, what was your purpose? And like, how did you see him? Like as the inspiration to really create something? And what did you really make? Well, I always knew I wanted to be a scientist. When I was when I was little, you remember, I'm the
1: right age. I'm a child of the Apollo era. So when I was a little kid, we were going to the moon. And, you know, that was really cool. And and so, you know, science was like really popular and it was really fascinating and part of the popular culture. And and I knew I wanted to be a scientist. I thought at first I would be a physicist. And I kept with that idea for a long time. And then uh, as I got older, I was like, I think I want to study people. So I switched from uh, physics to economics. And I was in my first year in my doctorate in economics when I thought, no, it's not quite what I want to do. So I made one more switch to sociology and psychology, and that's where I got my doc. So it's for me, it's always been about studying. And increasingly, it, it was about studying people, because if we know ourselves better, we can make better decisions and we can build better institutions and we can make the world a better place and doing something like that always really appealed to me it's I, th- I thought it was really cool to use science to try to make the world a better place
0: yeah i completely agree like there's so much youtube now that you can search such educational perspective and get more open views on youtube to really understand yourself I and mean, and now that you can do that now it's like so much more better
1: yeah oh yeah I, when i was a kid we had i had a set of encyclopedias and uh you know we'd I'd go to the library once a week and uh if you'd hear about a book that the library didn't have then you could fill out the form and they would somehow using their magic librarian network get you a copy eventually uh and it may be a few weeks later but but you know that's all we had and uh, You know, there were there were three channels on TV and, uh, you know, travel was expensive. And it was, you know, the first time I went out of out of the United States was in as a teenager in the mid 80s. And, you know, that was that was unusual. Uh, You know, it was it was harder to travel back then. And now, you know, you're right. We can we can do like we're doing right now. We can hop on computers and talk with one another halfway across the world. You know, almost exactly 32 years ago, when I was in college, I started getting these weird symptoms. And, you know, at the beginning, my balance went wonky. My, my eyes were, were doing these funny things. I started itching. I, I, I felt confused. and you know, I'm, I, I didn't get a good answer for it at the time. And then it went away and then it came back and it went away and it came back over the years. And then finally, in 2002, I woke up one morning and I couldn't feel my left leg below my knee. I just had no feeling at all. Well, so that was kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, and and I thought I'd overdone my workout you know, like lifting weights the day before and like pinched a nerve or something. So, you know, I didn't think a whole lot about it at the time, it was just weird. And then a few days later, it was back and everything was normal. And then it came back again. And then it went away. And then I started having other parts of my body disappear. And then finally, one morning I woke up and I could feel my right arm and my head but the rest of my body was gone. Couldn't feel anything. So so at that point, my then wife put her foot down and said, you're going to go in and get this looked at. And, and I went in and went through a long colorful process. And eventually they said, oh, you've got multiple sclerosis,
0: which is not a diagnosis you want to get. Yeah, it's, it's a life treatment diagnosis yeah my mother like i told you my mother has multiple sclerosis as well and i don't think it's as worse as yours like you described it quite like it's a quite bad thing but my mother can still walk and but it's just the balance and the easy fatigue and needing to have like a lot of self-care and how other than that she's fine but yeah, it's like scary if she ever faints or anything, so. Yeah, yeah,
1: there's, there's something that happens. I mean, most people, unless I tell them, don't guess that I have MS because I usually now, you know, by the end of the day, I'm, I'm kind of shuffling along and, and uh, often holding on to something to help keep myself up or like, you know, holding on to the wall as I'm moving around. But for a lot of the day, uh, I'm I'm doing all right with that. But many of the symptoms of MS are cognitive and emotional, and so that it gets in the way of of how we think, and there's and it gets in the way of our emotions. I mean, sometimes we have like weird, labile emotions that are just like all over the place, and they don't match the experience that we're going through. So there's there's just like an all kinds of symptoms that can come with it because you know what's what's happening is our our immune systems are attacking the myelin that surrounds the neurons in our our brains and our spinal cords. So depending on what that neuron is supposed to be doing. Some of them are, are, are about movement, and some of them are about, uh, say, problem solving, and some of them are about regulating our emotions. Well, whatever gets damaged, that's the thing that shows the effect. So it's, it's they call MS a, snowflex, a, a snowflake disease because no two people's symptoms are exactly alike. And you know, in my case, like, like most people that have MS, I have relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. So that means, you know, just fancy medical speak for it comes and go. And eventually, you know, I've got, I mean, I've got many symptoms now that, that never go away, but there will be periods where some new symptoms pop up for a while and then they disappear. Or symptoms I haven't had in a while will pop up and then they'll disappear.
0: And then there are other symptoms that are always with me. Yeah, I see. Now, what is it like for you, like you describe the symptoms, Like, what is it like for you as a person? Can you like, still, can you, do you still feel fulfilled in your life even though you have these symptoms going on?
1: I'm sorry, can I still feel
0: what? Can you still feel fulfilled when like, even though you're having these symptoms? Creative. I'm still me.
1: I I still want the things out of life that I that I wanted before I was diagnosed. I, I still want to have new experience in 2019. <clears throat> for for a few years there, I had gone through a really really bad phase, and my symptoms had gotten really bad. And you know, my I, I wasn't functioning well. My my family uh, wrote me off. And left. And so my, my, you know, my wife and children decided that I was more trouble than I was worth. And so I was really depressed at that. My dog even died. And I got so down that, you know, I, I, I just really couldn't see a way to a life that I was interested in living again. So when I was at the very bottom, I said, uh, you know, I need to turn my science on myself and use those things that I'm an expert in to modify my mindset and my behaviors and and the way that I was approaching life with this condition and and build a better life for myself. And part of that was I had had, you remember I said earlier, I was a child of the Apollo era and I was really interested with everything up in the sky. So as a kid, I had seen a skydiver at a little air show and it was the first time I'd seen a ram air parachute in real life. And that's the rectangular parachutes that are what we use now all the time. Before that, it was like those round ones and you just drop to the ground, wherever you drop, you can't control those. But the, the raymere parachutes which we call you know skydivers call them squares you can control those they're like a glider so you can fly them along and land them wherever you want and you know working with the winds yeah, so i wanted to be pardon you use the you use the toggles to pull down the rear corners of the, of the parachute and that deforms the wing and and that changes the shape of the airfoil and that's how you turn or dive or, you know, all the things that we do when we we're doing that. So in 2019, even though my MS was at a low point and it had been at a low point for a few years there, I said, you know what, even though I had given up on on the dream of becoming a skydiver, I said, I'm going to figure out a way to do this. And so I've got a drop zone five miles from my house and I went there and I started taking the training and it took a lot of extra work because I can't, you know, couldn't feel my legs and you've got to be able to control your legs in free fall or you go spinning all over the place. So it took a lot of extra jumps and a lot of tunnel time and a lot of extra work, but you know, I got, I completed my first license and then I went just, you know, I dove into it head first. And, uh, you know, in 2020, I logged 370 jumps in one year. So better than one a day, which is a pretty good clip. And, and so now I've, I've logged over, you know, I've I've logged over 600 jumps and got all the licenses and I've got a coach rating. And, uh, you know, for me being someone who had fundamentally learned that I couldn't trust my body to be able to put myself in a circumstance where if I can't make my body do what I need it to do, I'm going to die and to do it successfully for hundreds of times every day. That really gave me a huge amount of confidence to to get back in the world. And so I finished my book and... You know, I've got the book and the podcast and, and the seminars and uh, lots of other fun stuff like that. That's That's about helping to educate people like me who live with chronic illness, better ways to approach how they're living and to help loved ones and caregivers, because it can be really confusing and scary if someone you love, like, say, your mother, has this Kind of awful condition hanging over her, and and maybe sometimes you don't understand how it's affecting her or or that sort of thing. Well, chronic illnesses are really common. In the United States, half of all Americans have at least one chronic diagnosis, and the numbers are about the same for Australia as well. So they're everywhere, and we need better tools and better education for still being able to live good lives, even though we're sick. Because, you know, the thing that you asked uh, that prompted all of this a while ago was about being fulfilled. Well, I don't even want anybody to question whether, you know, if, if somebody is sick or different because of some kind of health condition or disabled I don't even want anybody to question whether they can have a fulfilling life because we're all just human and we all still can. Sometimes we need a little extra help, but you know, that's what I've devoted my life to, trying to be helpful in that way because everybody deserves a good life.
0: Yeah, so how do you create this mindset for people that are disadvantaged or People have been brought up with this mindset that they are not capable of doing anything.
1: The technical term for what you're talking about there is called learned helplessness. And it's, it's uh, a, a common and pernicious issue you know, that happens in our mindsets. <clears throat> if I could give everybody right now One little checklist that they could go through and get rid of that, I would. But here's the truth the truth is, there are many, many, many different ways to improve that mindset. And all of those methods will work for somebody, but only some of them will work for you. And they're going to be different now and in the future as you change and as your circumstances change. So what I'm interested in doing is one, helping people to understand what it is that they're dealing with, truly. You know, like, okay, so there's this learned helplessness uh, that happens in our mindsets. Well, why does it happen? It happens because someone has enough experiences where they can't express what we call their agency or your sense of control in the world. And all humans need to feel like we have some measure of control over our own lives. And if we don't, it's really depressing and it it causes us to disengage and eventually we can just give up. And another thing that causes this is what we call random reinforcement. So imagine, There's there's a classic experiment that was done uh, over 50 years ago now where they put dogs in wire cages and there were a couple of buttons. And if they pressed one, they would get food. And if they pressed another, they would get an electric shock. And this is classic conditioning. You learn that if you press one button, you get the food. And you press the other button, you get the shock, right? So what they did was they randomized the results. So they waited for the, you know, the animal to learn, okay, this is the button I want, this is the button I don't. And then they started randomly switching it. Okay. Now imagine how you would react if you were in that circumstance. So let's say you make a plan and you say, I'm going to do this thing. And every time I've done this thing, I get a good reward, right? and And you do that, and you do that. and then suddenly, one day, you do it, and you don't get the good reward. Okay, So now you feel a little confused. And so maybe you do the thing that was always the bad thing, that that didn't give you a reward, and you do that at maybe it's accidentally, and you and you do get a reward. Okay, now your world is all upside down, isn't it? Because, the thing that used to get you ahead now gets you behind and vice versa. And so now maybe you start learning, okay, I need to do that other thing. And then suddenly, randomly, without any warning, it changes again. With many chronic illnesses, we are either resource constrained, so we 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 can't do as much as we used to do, or we are what we're trying to do is inconsistent in ways that it wasn't before because we're at our capacity and if we understand those things we can start learning to analyze what else is going on in our world and maybe coming up with more creative ways to to get where we need to be And to understand that even if you're feeling helpless, you still have agency, but you may have to rethink how you're getting from one place to another.
0: Yeah, I heard this uh, Philip say that we can build um, our distractions and negative habits or bad habits and change them with another thing, so we don't necessarily need to take it away straight away, but we can have another habit that does something we like to do. So let's say I like shooting games, so I do. I become a cop. I become a policeman, and then I help the community while I have that passion. And over time, that um, the interest in games so it depletes. Every kind of,
1: of mindset change or behavioral change is actually a behavioral replacement or a mindset replacement. So you always have to create something new that's going to fit in the place of whatever was there to begin with. And we also have to remember that, you know when we think about changing a behavior, We think of it like, you know, this little tiny thing that we're going to change, but a behavior is like an iceberg because there's the outside movement that you can see, but then inside that behavior is contributing to your habits and your thoughts and your feelings and it's contributing to your identity and it's doing a lot of extra work.
0: Yeah, exactly. We could use... A healthy way that I have transformed my life is using journals, talking to people, and, you know, like, as you say, you consult. So how have you also like, changed people's lives for what you do or have done? And, and we've got to
1: understand that we're going to have to take really small steps.
0: Uh, could you like, repeat what you said before? <laughs> I'm so sorry.
1: Oh my! I think it's actually recorded. Uh, so because it's it's still recording; it never stopped.
0: I just studied uh, <clears throat> it.
1: No, you just you when you pressed it, it didn't actually restart. It it said that that the recording is still in progress.
0: Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah.
1: uh because i i didn't say i didn't say anything after you disconnected
0: oh i see no worries yeah that was like a bit laggy there so can you can you revisit the past for me if that's okay if you can't i I don't mind moving on yeah
1: i mean i think you've got all the stuff about
0: uh what was the reason why you made your book
1: well a couple of reasons first uh there are a lot of misconceptions that, that people have about health and illness and how that affects your life possibilities and how that's going to alter your life. It's not just people who live with chronic illness, because you know, look at it this way. <clears throat> so when you were a kid, you learned how to be sick, just like I did. Everybody around us did, and nobody sat us down to teach us how to be sick, but we learned by observing. We learned by watching other people. When they're sick, they feel bad. They groan about it. They laze around. They take their meds, and a few days later, they get up again, and they go back to their normal life, and our whole medical system is built on that kind of model it's called an acute care model. And the idea is people go in to say their their physician and they have a medical problem. The physician identifies what that problem is, prescribes a medical solution. They follow those instructions. They do those things. And it may be you know medicine it may be surgery it may be some kind of physical therapy whatever it is and eventually they get better they're pronounced well and they go back to their old life the way it was and that whole process usually takes a few days maybe a few weeks or or a very few months the way that the medical system is set up, the way that all healthcare is set up, is with this idea that the goal is to fix the person and send them back to normal life. Well, then you get somebody like me in the system where I'm not going to get better. And I'm likely going to get worse. I'm doing everything I can. To, to minimize the likelihood that I'm going to get worse, but it's not going to go away. And, and that's not the kind of problem that acute medical system is built to solve. And yet, like in the United States for the last few years, and, and again, this is similar to other western and developed nations around the world uh, about 85% of the money we spent on healthcare was for chronic conditions so it's massively expensive we don't treat it very well we don't we don't have the right concepts for how we treat it treating those kinds of conditions leads to a lot of professional burnout amongst physicians and nurses and orderlies and therapists and and other frontline medical health and wellness personnel. So I wrote the book because there's a whole lot of social and behavioral and medical science that a lot of people don't know about that can be brought together and that's what i did and a lot of original research because what i did is is i went out and i actually talked with other people like me and said what are the problems you're actually facing and so I, I I interviewed hundreds and I I surveyed thousands and and I, you know, brought in data on you know millions of data points for meta analyses and things like that, because what I was interested in, is, well, what are the problems that the system isn't solving? That that all of us are being left to, just kind of fish around blindly for For however you know we can get through it, and that's not right. It's you know because all of us, if we live long enough, unless we get you know taken out by an accident or or something like that, if we live long enough, almost all of us will have a lasting health condition for some part of our life.
0: yeah, that's exactly right. There's so many inspirational people, but they are are already past, so they're still living. And they already Mm -hmm. have these clinical illnesses that come into life in the new future. But living a life is not a point to living forever, but it's about having a purpose and creating an impact in society now rather than just like out of the condition and living with that mindset but we should really take action into our lives now
1: yeah it's it's about what we do you know there's something interesting you know people and it's this is the last chapter of the book it's chapter 13 where i talk about this and if if you ask people who are very old to look back on their lives and and Say what they found valuable about their lives. Then they're going to say that universally. Nobody says, "Oh, I had so much money," or you know, people, uh, you know, I was powerful, or or all that kind of stuff. They they don't say that. What they say is, it's the experiences of life that they found valuable. The experience of being with other people that they cared about. The experience of learning something new or or discovering something for themselves. The experience of really learning something and becoming good at something and being able to use that to contribute in their communities in some way. I mean, those are the things that people look back on. And say that's what made my life valuable. And in fact, I mean, you know, I, I did the research here. And and you know, if you if you do the analysis, there are only six things that give our lives value. And they're all experiences. They're experiences that make us feel happy, satisfied, functional, engaged, meaningful and secure. And the reason why we want money is we wanna have enough money to buy some of those experiences, the opportunity to have some of those experiences. Money itself doesn't make you happy. And having just one kind of experience, you get bored of that after a while. You've you've gotta switch it up. You've gotta contribute to all of those feelings. So you've got to do some stuff that makes you feel secure, and makes do some stuff that make you feel happy, and some stuff that makes you feel like you're meaningful, and and that make you feel engaged with other people and with nature and and the world, and and those are the things that, when we look back, you know, not only do we do we value those experiences as we're having them. When we look back, we value that we have had them, and we value the memories that that those experiences leave with us.
0: Yeah, I was just like thinking about having that purpose. Like I watch all YouTube videos about motivation, and they always come to purpose. and having such a strong purpose I and mean, it gives these different individual things are also like having that momentum in your spirit is the most strongest thing you can develop so how can we develop a strong purpose with ourselves
1: well it, it's okay so so let's, let's take this in two parts I mean on the one hand yes that is that is really important having that that purpose in life that meaning in life is is important but that's only one of those six things that that we need to to hit you can't you can't like only have meaning at the expense of never feeling secure for example and and so we we focus on purpose or meaning because it, it seems kind of sexy and because we find those things motivating and and motivation or inspiration is really primal it 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 touches our deepest emotions and and the oldest parts of our brain and it's great we need that but inspiration only lasts for so long and then it kind of wears out and you've got to get through the rest of the day and there'll be other inspirations that come along and you should find them and and those are going to be important and they're going to give you you know texture and dimension and and value and motivation for a while in your life but we just can't run on that all the time because again that's that's operating at a very primal level at at an emotional level and that's not always the part of our brain that we want driving because really i mean think about it most of life is boring that's why in movies you know you don't have we don't cut to like a real-time view of somebody sleeping overnight and They usually don't put in the bathroom breaks and and things like that because stories cut out the boring bits of life. And we're actually doing that. You and I and every other person is doing that constantly as we're putting our memories together. We don't remember most of the boring stuff day in and day out. We remember the things that contribute to our story and your identity is the most important story that you're telling your identity is the story that you tell yourself about yourself it's it's how you weave that meaning into well here's what i'm doing and why i'm doing it and the direction i'm trying to go in my life and and so that's, that's really primal, that's really important, but it also edits out a lot of the boring bits that we go through, you know, probably 23 hours out of the day is either sleep or bored. <laughs> and, and, but the thing that we remember is maybe the bits that add up to an hour of the day that you found interesting, or curious, or humorous, or meaningful, or you know, exciting in some way, or scary, you know, an, an intense emotion, uh, and and so one of the things that we can do to keep moving in our lives is to one regularly visit that edge. Okay, so the edge is like the limits of your capacity. It's where you're learning something new. It's where your your body is growing because you're moving and exercising and using it. It's where your emotions are growing because you're exposing yourself to new experiences and new people. It's where your your thought is growing because you're exposing yourself to new ideas and new experiences and, and new activities. And and that's cool you got to do that but you can't live there all the time because then you have to pull back and you have to go through the other half of that cycle and you have to rest and relax and nourish yourself and rest and sleep so that you're rejuvenated and you're ready to experience those things the next day and and too often we emphasize half that cycle you know the 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 edge part of the cycle and we forget that you know we 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 don't treat ourselves very well we don't give ourselves the sleep that we need to have we don't eat quality food we don't meditate and relax and practice mindfulness and 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 any, you know, self-care and, and those sorts of things. And, and then we expect to be up and to function well. But if, but if we, if we are, aren't kind to ourselves to begin with and, and don't honor ourselves to begin with and, and complete that cycle and allow ourselves to rest and relax and recover and recuperate, then we can't be ready to have those full, exciting, meaningful, happy experiences that we want to collect. Yeah, that's so I, th- happy- I think. I it-
0: think uh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, no, please. Well, oh, happiness is exactly the Boeing part and the fun part. It's Boeing is hard work and a lot of things that a lot of people dread, but it's really the thing that it commits a lot of time but we feel that it doesn't if we look back onto it so we should really have that drive even though it might be boring like why to do this but people should not give up it's necessary and we need to do it so we have that motivation in life to still pursue what we want and not give up just because it's boring
1: well, and that's, it. you know, one of the most important ways that we can get through that and, and make that a better experience is by really mindfully engaging in those activities so that we do them really well. And what's going on in our brain is it's it's called canalization and it's, and it's, Building and reinforcing new pathways, and and eventually it becomes what's called automaticity. So those tasks become more automatic, and they become more of a habit, and we do them well, because you got to remember, you are always learning whether you are paying attention or not. So if, if you're not paying attention, you don't know what you're learning. You may be learning some stuff that, that really isn't very helpful to you. You may be learning some, some really bad habits if, if that's what you're doing. So one of the first things that we want to do is we want to practice being in this moment right now. And We don't always have to be you know i'm I'm not saying that you you have to be rigidly you know authoritarian about it, but I'm saying that you need to be more aware because then you're more aware of what you're actually learning and how your your body and your brain and your mind are responding to it, and then you can be more conscious and more mindful
0: about doing those things better yeah when i look at the the boring parts and then when we make mistakes is when people normally give up but then i say my my reaction to that is always like challenges come to me or the struggles i want them all like i want them to be like axes like beating onto my onto me like so that i can grow so much in my life that I will foster people when they interact with me. So like I see people see mistakes and obstacles as the hardest thing in their life. And like, when they share their experiences, they always share these, these struggles, but those are the precious moments that we should take in and just work hard and it's like, that is, I've overcome that. That's another step of the ladder. And then you are better people by keeping these moving forward in life mindset
1: yeah this is this is chapter four of my book and and what people have to realize is that when you fail at something that's good because you have identified an edge for yourself and so you have to keep revisiting it you have to keep going back to it and Maybe you'll fail the next five times, maybe 10 times, maybe 20 times, but then you'll succeed. And then maybe you'll succeed two times out of 10, and then five times out of 10. And then pretty soon, you'll be succeeding more often than you're failing at this thing that used to be your limit. But you have to remember that our, our, brains are wired to protect us by pulling us back shorter than our real limits are. So people say, oh, I can't do that. Or, you know, they they have one little failure and then they give up. Well, that's your brain protecting you by trying to pull you back before you really get hurt. So most of the time, we have more that we can do and we can do better. We just haven't learned to do that yet. And that takes practice.
0: Can you, Have you went through this type of experience? Like, do you see this connect to?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I, that's, I, think about it this way. A guy who can, who can barely keep his balance on the ground learns how to, how to control his body at 120 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour in the air. Um, you know, I was at my limit. I was, I was seriously at my limit. And I, I had a few jumps, you know, when I was working on my, my A license where I actually, I, I actually had an instructor tell me after a jump, that is the most terrifying skydive I've ever been on. <laughs> because I was spinning out of control. And she was like, he is not going to be able to get himself under control in time to pull his, his parachute. And it's going to end up being a reserve fire. But, you know, I did. I I kept working at it, kept working at it, kept working at it, even though I couldn't really feel my legs. I learned how to feel where my legs were by the tension behind my knees, which I can feel. So I had to be creative and do that. Just like, you know, when I, how do you stand up a landing on a parachute when you can't feel your feet? Well, I learned how to feel the pressure when my feet touch down at my knees. Where I can still feel all the time. So each one of those things was, was a limit. And it was a limit that, you know, probably most people from the outside, you know, rationally would say he's got no business doing this. And, and, you know, my response was bull. It's going to be more difficult for me to get there. And I'm gonna fail a lot. And I did fail a lot. The average, look, to get your A license in skydiving, wherever you go in the world, it's, it's the, the you know, same rules. 25, generally speaking for most places is 25 jumps to get your A license. It took me 47, almost twice what it takes a normal person to check off all of the skills. That you have to do in the air to get that license. Now, a lot of people probably would have given up because you know it's it's probably kind of embarrassing to still be doing the student jumps when you've got enough jumps to almost be at your B license. But I didn't care. I was going to do it because it was something that had been important to me since I was a little kid and that, you know, I had given up on and I was like, no, I'm not going to be the person that gives up on the stuff that I really care about. Even though I've got MS and I've got these extra layers of challenges. Everybody has challenges.
0: I just got a name for mine. Yeah, like no matter what thing you want to do, like in that moment you should still like capture it even though you fail. Yeah, I really like how you put down that. I mean, yeah. Um, like for myself, I I struggle with learning of a learning difficulty, so I learn pretty slowly, and mm-hmm. yeah, I always had this resilience to failure and then I would always have this passion to keep going but other people would always push me down and after they keep pushing me down I after a while give up but for some things like most recently I became a violin teacher and for eight years Mm -hmm. my teacher my my friends all taught me like or like Good trip me like the saying that I can't do it and like putting me on the spot or making jokes about me but having that joy in teaching students is like so valuable that we all can still do what we want no matter if like if it seems stupid or like a stupid hobby it's a valuable lesson that we learn by experiencing these things.
1: And I know uh, people can't see my face here because this is audio, but, but I, I just want to note here that as, as Joshua was talking there, I got a really big smile on my face because I was like, yeah, that's it. That's the spirit. And uh, that is the thing that will stand you in good stead. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I was, I was a naturally optimistic guy. I always have been, and, you know, life and illness and circumstances, you know, over a, a, a decade of just one hit after another, and, you know, I just talked about my EMS, but at the same time, my then wife almost died of cancer, you know, so we we had a, uh, we were dealing with a decade of of very late stage aggressive cancer at the same time in the family. And we had two little kids that we were trying to raise at the same time. And there were professional challenges. And and so, you know, it was just a lot of stuff. And, and you know, I'm, I am sad to say that even though I was a really optimistic person to begin with, I went through stuff for a few years there that that just beat it out of me. And and I I got to the point where I didn't have any hope and I said I'm going to give myself one more chance. And the, and the one more chance that I'm going to give is I'm going to become a freaking skydiver. <laughs> and, and and I did. I stuck with it and I did and by succeeding there even though that success Had a lot of failures along the way, getting there. It still was a win. And and that was a success that I could carry into the rest of my life. Because even though I've got MS and even though I've got wonky legs and even though I'm always in pain and always fatigued and always foggy and all those other things, I can still walk through the world and say to everybody else around me, you know what? I can throw myself at the Earth at 200 miles an hour and save myself 20 seconds before death, every time. And that's a lot of confidence that you can that you can build on.
0: Yeah, the confidence that we really need to be able to pursue what we want, yeah. Could you, you mentioned yeah. that you were a teacher, could you tell me about your experience teaching and the purpose or experiences you made with students.
1: yeah I mean I love teaching I you know I taught I taught for 15 years I taught. let's see, for in 15 years I taught 164 sections of 30 different undergraduate and graduate courses. Uh, that was about eight thousand students going through my classes over those years, um, and and I thoroughly love students. I, I, I you know it, I, I love people who are trying to learn, and you know I know there's there's a a slice of people in the world who like get down on students or or get down on like uh, Gen Z and and everything and i'm like you guys are a really cool generation i mean i've got so much faith in in this generation i i mean you're not putting up with a lot of the the stupidity that that we have dealt with before and i you know i just i i i am optimistic about this generation. And, I, and, you know, and, I, and I, I really loved, you know, my students were like, you know, part of them were Gen Z and some of them were like, you know, the the younger millennia, millennials. And it's like, you know, I I had great experiences teaching. And one of the things I like about what I do now is even though I'm not still a professor, I'm teaching all the time. So I'm doing seminars and webinars and, and I'm giving speeches and, and, you know, working with people to, to help learn these things so they can live better lives. And, and so I, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine being in the world and not trying to teach. I mean, I think I've been extraordinarily lucky. I mean, you know, no matter the MS, I, I've been really lucky because I had the opportunity to get as much education as you can get, you know? I go all the way to become a doctor and, and, and do that and, and devote my life to learning something that I really felt passionately about. And then you know i think that incurs an a it it incurs a responsibility to then share that with other people and and to use it to build things that use that knowledge to to make life better in some way so you know i, I love the act of teaching I love the fact that when I teach I always learn new things because students will always ask the questions that I never thought of and and that forces me to see it in a different way and and it forces me to to take their perspective and understand well, why is this a question for them when it never was for me? Because it's not that it's a bad question; it's a different question because they're bringing different experience and and different concerns, and they're at a different place in their life, and they have different knowledge that they're bringing. So, so, what do I learn from that? And 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 the act of teaching is always it always stretches me. It always you know, encourages me to grow in in different ways. And sometimes a student will ask a really good question and I won't have the answer. And I will say, I don't know, but you know what? I know how to look that up in the right way and I will find out and I will get back to you and I will tell you. And I won't stand up here and BS some kind of answer that I'm not confident in uh, just because I know that I could probably get away with it, because you don't know. So I, I really think that's cool. When when you know, I do that because I get the opportunity to learn, and and I get the opportunity to feel really good when I've helped someone see the world in a different way or a better way, and and. And I'm always delighted, you know, every once in a while I hear from a, a student that I had, you know, back in the 90s. And, and they'll tell me, you know, they'll like to say, drop me an email or something or, or I'll be out and about in the city and, and I'll run across. Somebody will see me and will and say, wow, Dr. Payne!" And, you know, we'll have a conversation and I get to see what they did with what we were teaching and learning together in that class all those years ago. And that's really cool,
0: so. Yeah, I get it as a, a student and a teacher that when I'm a student, I strive to have a need to improve or a professionalism because I got like, I was doing children literature and I worked like, it's only a a week per uh, per submission so i did one about the LGBT, LGBTQ, uh and it was about this children's spoke about the Julian is a mermaid i made mean, it like connects with animals so that although animals are diverse we they're still they connected with anyone else it's not so it's not, it didn't have any stereotypes. And then I made it the next day to have um different prompts that would help the teacher or student answer this particular scenario. And like think of body and just have a bigger imagination to how can I care for those students? Yeah.
1: Makes you feel pretty good, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. Um. So, what type of speeches have you given?
1: Oh, all sorts of stuff. I mean, I <clears throat> I actually grew up uh, on stage. Uh, now nowadays, I you know when I give a keynote, I've got I've got four different topics that are related to chronic illness that that I I, I tend to give I my my kind of signature keynote is one called life on the edge and it's about you know it's about chapter 4 from my book and and so it's about learning and growing and stress and how and how all the things that that we find scary and painful and and icky and and we want to avoid in the world are on one side of the edge and Joy and learning and growth and and all of these things that we love are right there next to them on the other side of the edge. And if we pull ourselves from the possibility of having a bad experience, we also pull ourselves away from the possibility of having the best experiences in life as well. And we don't want to do that because that makes our lives feel small and meaningless. We've already established those aren't the things that we want. So it's it's about finding the, the right perspective and the bravery and the commitment to go to your edge. And risk sometimes failing and having the bad experiences because that's the price of having those great experiences too. And of course, I use my journey with becoming a skydiver with MS as kind of the lens, you know, the story to tell, uh, you know, those lessons through.
0: So, would you? Um... Where can the listeners find you and what things do you promote? Ah, oh, very
1: nice. Well, everything is at yourlifelivedwell.co So yourlifelivedwell.co and they can get a, you know, right now they can go to the website and get a free 100-page preview of the book, Your Life Lived Well. And that'll be out on February 7th. Uh, So they can learn some more about my crazy story, but more important uh, in that is part of the book that helps people uh, reconsider the way we think about being healthy and being ill. Um, You know, at yourlifelivedwell.co, they can also, uh, you know, find... Links to my podcast, and uh, you know, or they can find the Your Life Lived Well podcast on any of the major, you know, platforms. Uh, it's all over the place. Uh, they can see the uh, seminars and webinars that I do, and I and and I do those in a couple of ways. Uh, webinars, uh, and I've got twenty-four different webinars that are related to. Everything from help I've just been diagnosed to a webinar that helps medical health and wellness professionals deal with burnout. And uh, I do those not only for organizations, so like, you know, hospitals or practices or or uh, you know therapists or support agencies or you know bring me in to do that kind of thing but i also do them publicly so there's you know the webinar and they can go and they can see the schedule of the webinars on the on the website and then they can sign up for one there and, and they can do that uh you know there's a blog where i i post stuff new ideas and things that they you know that might help them uh, living with or caring for chronic illness uh, and and uh, you know on social media on you know on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn it's at your well and if they can't remember that just go to your co and right there along the left are the little buttons that that send you to all the social links so I, you know i hope people drop by your life lived well.co and sign up for the the list you know and that's free of course and and uh, you know i hope that 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 will help them if they're living with chronic illness or if they're supporting someone with chronic illness or if they're a professional uh, who are who's working in that field We've got resources uh,
0: to help all of you. they will be all in the description below. Thank you for listening. Bye. Thanks so much, Josh.